Um, because I am talking about patriotism today, I'm talking about democracy. Fourth of July is coming up. I, I don't have a flag pen. I looked for one. But this is a topic that has been very important to me a lot for a lot of my life because I taught 25 years of U.S. history. In fact, I came down to Washington after college to go into politics. I felt that I had government service in my blood from my great-great-grandfather down, and I was crazy enough to think that I wanted to try to follow in their footsteps. But it was really the study of history that got me so turned on to the idea of democracy in, in college. Uh, I loved this collection of incredibly contradictory streams in our history. The idea of liberty mixing with coercion, charity and greed, uh, hypocrisy and idealism, all wrapped up in an incredible struggle to try to bring uh, a dream alive. The, the personalities of history I, that I adored were uh, people like Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, Jane Addams, FDR. And again, I wanted to sort of follow in their footsteps if at all I could. Well, I got a job on Capitol Hill and it didn't last long. Uh, I was about a year. It was exciting while I was doing it, but for some reason it wasn't giving me something that I wanted. I don't know quite what it was. I think it was maybe because politics is the art of the possible, is what I've been told. And I didn't want to do what was possible. I wanted to change what was possible. And that was not happening in my very brief sojourn on the Hill. After writing about three dozen speeches and answering about 2,000 or so constituent response mails, I, I went on to teach history in high school for 25 years where I could nurture my idealism for politics in a more interpersonal context. In, nine, in 2008, as many of you felt the same excitement with Obama's campaign and his message of hope and change, I wondered whether democracy had entered a new golden age that we would somehow really bring out our best and our ideals would be honored. Now maybe it was naive, you know, only a two years later to think that one campaign could be a sea change in American politics. Because as the campaign dust settled, the, the nastiness of politics uh, came back almost instantly. The discussion in mainstream media was as fractious and ugly as ever and sold to us on every cable TV channel you could get. Trust in Congress today is at a historic low. So I was wondering how we could transform this bitterness, once again, this effort to try to uh, get around the corrosive element of that anger that really hurts our ability to govern and our ability to come together as a nation. So I was looking for what advice I could draw from ethical humanism and from ethical culture, from our history, that might help us build what I want to call an ethical democracy. Now, I am going to give you more ethical culture history probably than you want. Uh, it's what happens when you go through training for four years. <laughs> Maybe I'll get by it in a couple of years. But I'm going to suggest that we can build an ethical democracy, but that it's going to take a lot of engagement, it's going to take a lot of personal relationships, and a whole chunk of idealism, the sort of idealism that I felt when the Obama campaign was underway. Now, during my 30 years of teaching, I never pretended that American politics was a love fest. Despite the gentlemanly persona of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, their campaigns could hurl mud with the best of them. Some of the tabloids were absolutely ruthless, and the, the, the innuendo and the rumors and the mongering was, was very prevalent in early campaigns, all through it. Divisiveness and confrontation has always been a part of American politics. 
But I think more recently, military analogies have been applied to politics. I remember the 1992 film about the Clinton campaign called, do you remember what it was called? The War Room. Now here's you know, good old boy Bill Clinton's exterior. He's a political animal, and Stephanopoulos and Carville underneath really planned the campaign like it was a military strategy. The words they used, they, they had tactical assaults, they perfected their attack strategies, they targeted independence, they rallied their troops, they fought over every battleground state, and that's the sort of language we hear all the time. We have maps of armies of red and blue fighting each other, and that's the way politics is, is seen in a lot of contemporary culture. And these metaphors were passed on to the Obama campaign, despite the idealism. And it really revealed an incredibly controversial and, and, and uh, confrontational reality. And Obama's promise to reach across the aisle now seems like a promise that is very, very hard to keep. And now we have the Tea Party movement. Now, it's not the explicit core values of the Tea Party movement that I have a problem with. I may not emphasize the same things they do, but on the face of it, they preach fiscal responsibility, limited government, and free markets. So I may disagree with how they emphasize those, but what troubles me, and probably what troubles you, is the anger and the nastiness and the hostility that the Tea Party movement seems to be promoting in our culture. Most of you know of all the ugly reports that came out during the healthcare debates. I mean, one thing after another. Uh, when I was researching this, I found that there was more than just the, the fact that a representative was spit upon and, and that homophobic and racial insults were yelled at representatives. One member of the House received a phone message threatening sniper attacks, and the same member had a brick thrown through one of her congressional district office windows. Uh, the highest ranking black lawmaker in the House received an anonymous fax showing a noose, and so on and so on. And I think, my God, is this the best that democracy can offer? I mean, basic manners that my mother would teach me is not evident in the highest, most hallowed halls of our political structure. There's a quote by Edmund Burke, who is the British politician and philosopher for whom the school was named where I taught for 25 years. He said, manners are of more importance than laws. Manners are of more importance than laws. Manners are what vex or soothe, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarize or refine us by a constant, steady, uniform, insensible operation like that of the air we breathe in. We have a cultural infatuation with rudeness, however, that ma makes manners seem like some bourgeois pretension that we should just throw out. Anybody that watches South Park or a lot of TV shows know that. Some recent attacks, however, this hostility and rudeness, are wrapped up in a populist message as well. And this is a big thing that the Tea Party folks are hanging on to. People who identify themselves as uh, typical Americans see their enemies as government or financial fat cats feeding at the public trough. It seems that they're no longer, these leaders of our society are no longer viewed as paragons of virtue but rather like untrustworthy hired help that either have to be disciplined or fired. Now this reaction, this growing disdain for far-sighted expertise in politics and other professions, are wrapped up in this whole idea that somehow to be an elite is a bad thing. Remember during the campaign where Obama had to back away from being an elite? And I remember John Stewart saying, don't we want the best to rule our country? Don't we want the elites in our country to rise to the top? But despite that, there are some things that these leaders have done to shoot themselves in the foot. Despite what Goldman Sachs says, we seem to breed lawyers, uh, bankers and accountants, for example, that are not really out to 
protect the economy and the common good, but really simply to serve their clients' demand for higher profits or their own bonus structures, one or the other. Uh, I remember when lawyers in history books served the law, capital L, and that was a real concept. But now it's really just the highest bidder is what determines what people will do. We're served by, we'd be better served, I think, if we had experts that didn't cater simply to a clientele mentality, but saw themselves dedicated to loftier goals and an expertise or a vision of the future or some ideals. But democracy often sacrifices long-term ideals for short-term favors. Poll chasing, for example, when you look at the, pop, you know, the public polls, they come out by the hour, it seems, and people simply are chasing their poll numbers all the time. And this has a long history, too. Uh, take, for example, William Jennings Bryant, the populist presidential candidate about 100-plus years ago. When asked why he supported the policy of free silver, this was his answer. He said, I don't know anything about free silver. The people of Nebraska are for free silver, and I am for free silver. I'll look up the arguments later. <laughs> At least he was honest, right? But the masses and the lobbyists who represent special interests are often dominated by short-term demands. Future generations don't have lobbyists, and that's why we need politicians to take them into account. They have to represent the future, or we won't have one. Democracy is endangered, I think, if people simply, politicians simply go with public opinion without question. Again, Edmund Burke, who's quoted by a lot of conservatives at this time, I see a lot of liberal messages in his words, says, the will of the many and their interest must very often differ. The will of the many and their interest must very often differ. He continues, he says, your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment and he betrays you instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. Now, as a solution, Fareed Zachariah, who's a writer for the Newsweek International, he's the editor, he says that democracy should become a little less democratic. He says we should insulate decision makers, quote, from the intense pressures of interest groups, lobbies, and political campaigns. That is to say, from the intense pressures of democracy. Now, maybe there's some truth in Zachariah's point, but I don't think we have to limit democracy to fix it. I think the solution to democracy is more democracy. We all must, myself included, get more involved in democracy. Now, my most recent small step was joining the coffee party movement. Does anybody know? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Okay, yeah, it's, it's beginning, trying to get some legs in Tacoma Park, I know. This movement's a little bit too new to know where it's going. But I like its call for civility and cooperation. It's an alternative to polemics. I want to read you what their mission statement is. It says, the coffee party movement gives voice to Americans who want to see cooperation in government. Wow. We recognize that the federal government is not the enemy of the people, but the expression of our collective will, and that we must participate in the democratic process in order to address the challenges we face as Americans. Now, I left a 25-year teaching career in part to become an ethical culture leader in hopes that I'd be able to contribute something to creating an ethical democracy. And in some ways, my vision is very traditional. It's simply a constitutional democracy with majority rule that protects individual rights. But it's also one that is imbued with ethical humanist values, things like the worth of individuals, 
the importance of relationships and honesty, and a belief that you can create something that serves the common good. That's the type of humanism I love, and that's the sort of democracy I would like to see America grow. One that nurtures relationships instead of waging war. Wouldn't it be nice if we could turn the metaphor around to one that's more growing and more positive? And I think that sort of a democracy really could inspire the world. The United States has always felt that the eyes of the world are on it. You've heard the expression, we're a city on a hill. That was from John Winthrop over 400 years ago. We've always felt that we are a civic experiment for the world to view. This was something that Felix Adler knew. And when he saw the corruption in city governments at the turn of the century and during the Gilded Age, he was infuriated because he felt it was taking away our chance to try to teach the world something. He wrote, the obvious faults of our democracy have retarded the progress of democracy in Europe. Our failure in municipal government is constantly quoted abroad as an argument against democracy. This should be a real incentive to rouse us out of our self-complacency. Ethical culture leader Al Black, a very dynamic political leader, crusaded for democracy in the 1960s as well as well before that. He says, the crucial question is whether democracy, democratic society can rid itself of its major defects, its excessive inequalities, callous impersonality of relations, the ethics of the marketplace, the abuses of commercialism, the racial and religious class war divisions, the false values of lush materialism. Although democratic society must deal realistically with the threat of military conflict, it is endangered not so much by external forces as by internal weakness. Wouldn't the best weapon against terrorism be to prove that a vibrant, secular, positive democracy works? Fareed Zachariah warns, however, that in nations without liberal traditions, majority rule can be oppressive. It is important that the rights of the individual are not quashed by some simplistic view that democracy is simply rule of the majority. Zechariah warns of examples, for example, Yeltsin's Russia, which on the surface was a democracy, or Chavez's Venezuela, or his own Hindu-dominated India, where Zechariah grew up as a Muslim feeling what he said was the tyranny of the majority. The majority can be dangerous. But perhaps the pendulum in America has swung too far from the revolution against King George to the more modern sort of boogeyman of socialism as being an issue. Our nation tends to glorify the autonomous individual at the expense of organic relationships and social cohesion. And I think that's some of the dynamic between the extreme right and the left today. There's a writer I urge you to pick up some books, a guy named Ben Barber. He critiques this idolization of individualism in America. He talks about something that he says is the zookeeper approach to government. He says quite often people look at government as something of a zookeeper, that the way to deal with individuals is to keep them in separate cages, where somehow autonomy is valued above all else. Voting, for example, which should be democracy's sort of communal high point and communal celebration is often seen as really an isolated act. I love this description Barber has for voting. He says, our primary electoral act, voting, is rather like using a public toilet. We wait in a, in a line with a crowd in order to close ourselves up in a small compartment. 
where we can relieve ourselves in solitude and in privacy of our burden, pull a lever, then, yielding to the next in line, go silently home. Now, John Dewey is somebody who wrote quite a bit about the idolization of individualism. And he says that this, almost this fetish in America, denies people what they need to feel connected. And his analysis of the 1930s, where you had a growth of both communism and fascism, he says was a result of American culture that didn't offer connections that were real. And as a result, people ran to these extreme collective visions of our country. He argues that there is a growing awareness of the emptiness of individual, individuality and isolation. And he saw that not only in politics, but in religion as well, where he thought that in religion, people, there was this preoccupation with individual salvation. I think that's something that ethical culture has a very good counter to. Bowling alone is not as fun. We went bowling last night, White Oak. Cosmic bowling, by the way, 10 to midnight, 14 bucks, all you can bowl. <laughs> Now, I think to promote democracy, you also have to get away from this idea that it's simply a system of voting. It really is more of a way of life. The problems of democracy can't be fixed by better voting booths or campaign reform, although that can help a lot, believe me. George O'Dell, who embodied the national office of the American Ethical Union for over 30 years, said it very well. He said, democracy is more than a pulling of a lever in a polling booth. It means the appeal to think in social terms, to belong consciously in a community, to share intelligence with each other, to do one's work in the world so as to enhance the working power and achievement of others, to recognize that class barriers and economic distinctions are an insult to the human soul, that in all persons there's the possibility of decency. The possibility of decency. It seems common sense that common decency flourishes best in the context of personal relationships. Personal relationships, when managed ethically, can break through the propaganda, the grandstanding, and the dogma, and best balance individual rights and collective will. But personal relationships take time. And if you talk to legislators today, they don't have the time that they used to have. It was never an easy job. But today, the pressures are so great, it used to be that they would stay in Washington over the weekends and get together with each other, Republican and Democrat, for barbecues and social events. Nowadays, they don't do that. After the last vote, they fly back to their district because they have to raise money and meet with constituents. So there's no wonder that there's not the personal relationship that allows for manners to grow. It's all sound bites that are, are waged to try to gain an advantage over the other individual. Ethical culture leader John Lovejoy Elliott, who was really the, the number two man for Adler, fascinating guy. I urge you to read some of his writings. He explains this, this dynamic. He says, heaven and defend us against those who tell us merely to have faith and trust in democracy without definition, without seeing that those can only be relied on to be democratic who have had democracy bred into them by face-to-face -face association." through learning and practicing a democratic way of life and working along with people they actually know. It's in face-to-face -face relationships that I think you gather the skills to have good dialogue. Jane Addams, who taught civics and democracy, always taught the art of conversation along with her historical lessons. 
She said that she believed the conversations generated what she called sympathetic knowledge. And she said that this knowledge was superior to book learning because it carried with it a whole context of human emotions and a historical social context in which people grow together because they know they share a life. It's in face-to-face -face dialogues that we really learn to treat each other better. And that's how I think the spirit of democracy will grow. Now, I know it's not always easy to see the possibility of decency in people who disagree with you vehemently, who people are on the other side of a political argument, who oppose you, who block your efforts, or who mock you. It's very hard to see that. It's hard to see that during a bruising political campaign or a time of economic problems or terrorism because fear breeds tribalism. Fear breeds a desire to dehumanize others and not have relationships with them. Howard Radis, another ethical culture leader, in an article he wrote called Democracy in a Time of Terror, reminds us that our ideals should be fueled by an expansion of the democratic spirit, not a retrenchment. He says, democratic values, integrity of persons, trustfulness between persons, hopefulness from persons, endure beyond wealth and strength. It's these values that together make democracy not merely a political arrangement, but a mode of living. Democracy is a mode of living. Observing the past few decades of ethical culture, leader Ed Erickson noted that there's been a growing emphasis in ethical culture on, quote, a cultivation for warmth and caring for each other, a more deeply sense, felt sense of being members of a gathered community. That's the congregational strength of ethical humanism. Attitudes, personal relationships, dialogue, the spirit of democracy, these are human challenges. But I think ethical humanism can offer us some answers to these challenges. Now, I'm going to give you a challenge today as part of your expression of ethical humanism. I'm going to ask you, regardless of your political affiliation, to pick one person in your mind right now who you disagree with over political issues. I want you to try to reach out, to listen to them, understand them as you haven't before, build a better relationship. That's doing the hard work of being a citizen in a diverse democracy. We have to ethicize our politics from the ground up. We have to create an ethical democracy. I hope we're up to the challenge. Now, the challenge is not simply about individuals being nice to each other. It's also about how groups get along when they disagree. It's not the disagreements we have to get rid of. We have to learn how to handle them when we are on opposite sides, Republican or Democrat, red or blue, black or white, poor or rich gay or straight. We can't deny the reality of group affiliations. We can't deny or dissolve the historical reality of groups in some idealistic individualism so that we can all get along. Groups are of particular importance to marginalized groups. In individualistic models, the status quo maintains control through structural inertia. If you keep people in cages, you're not going to build a civil rights movement. It was a shared suffering that led minorities and women during the 60s to come together to try to bring a better union. And that's important. But again, it's a balance between collectivism and the sacredness of the individual. I know that some Marxists might dismiss the individual as a political figment, that the true reality are class groups. 
But what makes ethical humanism unique, I think, is that it both simultaneously embraces the sacredness of the individual and the importance of relationships and groups. Adler's appreciation for cultural groups contributed to a very textured view of democracy that he had, and I'm not going to be able to get very far into it today. I'll just note that in an 1894 Plymouth lecture series that he gave, he said that if classes that make up society stand face to face, they will not only come to terms but to a clearer understanding of their mutual interdependence and the consciousness of their unity, which is at present dim and ineffective, will be more and more become a felt living power. He understood that large-scale democracy can't merely be a collection of individual votes. Groups that grow together organically have to learn to cooperate within the groups and then between groups. This underlies a concept that he had of vocationalism, that somehow people in certain calls in their life, certain professions, have natural things that bring them together, and those, those are acceptable groups. So I don't, for example, Adler was not a, uh, a, uh, a union buster. He didn't see unions as an enemy, but rather a staging area where workers themselves could learn to cooperate for shared goals and then reach out to the rest of society. Because one's identity is both personal and individual and historical. I mean, for me, as an example, I'm an individual and I'm a part of many groups. I'm autonomous and I'm related. When I graduated from college, I felt very autonomous. Then I chose to get married. I chose to have children. But I didn't view these changes as contractual arrangements between individuals that somehow had to be managed to protect my autonomy. I didn't lose my autonomy, but I did change and I did grow. I enjoyed a marriage that was greater than the sum of two parts. I enjoyed a family that was a real thing worth nurturing in and of itself. It's not a compromise of autonomy, but it is an ongoing, transforming experience to be a part of a group in a deep and real way. And that relationship enhances one's uniqueness. As a nation, we're more than just a collection of individuals. We are individuals and we're collectives seeking common ground. I think as a nation we yearn to form a more perfect union. Appreciation, the appreciating the collective unity of our country while maintaining the collective worth of the individual and the integrity of groups is what Adler called the collective task of mankind. He also called this journey as a citizen the spiritual end of citizenship. The spiritual end of citizenship. Now, I am a big fan of the wall separating church and state. So that phrase, the spiritual end of citizenship, is not one that I use very often. But the idea that I think he's getting at is to see that becoming a citizen is transformative. It makes demands on you. It changes you. It forces you to have an identity with an ever-growing circle. Transformation has deep roots in ethical culture. Take, for example, the working man's school, which was what ethical culture Fieldston schools were called at the beginning. When Adler created those, he created them to help working class evolve from being enslaved to empowered. By encouraging workers to embrace the common good, first their own as workers, and then the common good of society as a whole, 
he hoped to help workers go beyond a quest for simply higher wages, shorter hours, but also a better country. That was his hope. Howard Radis writes that Adler, quote, did not believe in the glorification of the working class, but in its transformation. The transformation is what he sought in the soul of every person in a democracy. Decades ago, the encampment for citizenship, which was an ethical culture youth camp that maybe will be revived in the near future, had the goal of transforming young people into active, democratic, responsible citizens. And that that's the only way their potential could fully be realized in a democracy. Ben Barber once more. What is required is nothing more than a faith in the democratizing effect that political participation has on men and women. A faith not in what men and women are, but what democracy makes them. What kind of a citizen can an ethical democracy create? It can create a citizen that is not only an autonomous individual, but also see themselves as part of an ever-expanding circle. For Adler, ethical community grows from the local to the national to the international. He had, in many of his readings, if you look in the later chapters of An Ethical Philosophy of Life, he talks about these circles where you learn how to interact with people ethically and democratically in a family, and then you grow out to your neighborhood, and then to your jobs, and then to your religious group, and then to the world as a whole. And each one of these is a little testing area where you learn to do the democratic skills better and better until you can do them on larger areas. So learning here at West to get along with people that you don't agree with is actually a part of becoming a citizen. This is what Adler saw as the goal of ethical culture. Unlocking the potential for all Americans has to be the goal of our political process. We have to commit ourselves to an ethical citizenship that reaches across difference in, with integrity. Without this, cultural divides will simply continue to be negative and destructive. Rather than relationships, we'll have insults, stereotypes, and hostility. Real and personal relationships with those with whom we disagree are a solution. Speak with somebody you disagree with. Look for common ground. Serve the common good. To conclude, I want to return once more to the idealism of the national political campaign two years ago. It was so exciting. My idealism just bubbled up again. And one reason is that that idealism believes in a future. Ethical culture holds that faith for a brighter future. And that brighter future is always going to be beyond us. It's always going to be a horizon that's too far and yet we can head towards it. But the future is too often neglected in politics. It's an abstraction. Our job is to make that abstraction real. Edmund Burke, in this quote, he sounds like Ben Barber and he sounds like Felix Adler. He says, the state ought not to be considered as nothing better than a partnership agreement in a trade. It's to be looked on with other reverence. It's a partnership in all science, a partnership in all art, a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection. As the ends of such a partnership cannot be obtained for many generations, it becomes a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are yet to be born. 
Each contract of each particular state is but a clause in the great primeval contract, contract of eternal society. What a vision that we are contracted with everyone here in the past and in the future to create our future. There's a reverence there that I think can revitalize democracy. It'll be the only way democracy is going to save our planet, I believe. Groups coming together to serve the common good. And this common good has to be inclusive. The ideals that we strive for in ethical humanism are not handed to us by divine inspiration. They're only reached by painstaking, mundane dialogue through difficult issues on a day-to-day -day basis with those who we disagree. We have to learn to paint a picture together of a future that is beautiful enough to inspire everybody. Adler writes, binding ties are imposed not from above by the fiat of God. The radiant future stretches forth its arms to us and binds us to be willing servants to its work to serve that far distant course. The service to that cause disciplines, and affirms, and ennobles the individual. Thus we are bound not from above, but to the future. The future is the best part of the story of democracy. It what, it's what enlivens every history book, the fact that it is ours to make. We have to continue to transform civic life, to nurture faith in a process, not, the, not mere allegiance with any one party, any single election, or any single candidate. We have to work as ethical citizens to form a more perfect union and build a more ethical democracy. It's about engagement, relationships, and idealism. Who are you going to reach out to? Thanks a lot.